You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone. Today we have Allison Koff, who is the CEO of Artemis, which is an awesome name, by the way, which is a cultivation management platform, CMP. Never heard of one before. I'm going to let you explain what that means in a second. That enables growers to manage people, plants, process, and compliance all in one place while creating a virtually risk-free operation. Allison, how's it going? Awesome. How's it going over there? It's going great. Great as it can be going, I guess. Yeah, Allison, I mean, can you talk a little bit about your story first and then lead all the way up to what exactly a cultivation management platform is? Yes. And I also love that you're asking that question. One, because we actually created the term, so nobody should really know about it unless you're really specifically in ag. Um, but, but it's starting to take off, which is really fun. And so I'll actually start there and go backwards what a cultivation management platform is, is you can essentially equate it to how enterprise resource planning software exists in businesses and manufacturing and all these places where you have to manage what's going on operationally in your operation, whether you're, again, manufacturing, facility maintenance, whatever the industry is. In farming, we don't have something that's specifically managing the operational side of things. And that is what cultivation management software does. So it's really focused for a farmer as a user on managing all of the things you mentioned before, but the things that are related to your P&L. So whether it's where you're planting, when you're planting, what you're planting, who's running, what team on a labor standpoint, what you have to do from a compliance or food safety standpoint, all of those things managed at an enterprise level on a software basis. I started the company about five years ago. And before that, I was running operations for a large greenhouse company, growing specialty crops. So things like lettuce, tomatoes at the time, and did that for a number of years, which is sort of what drew my obsession to this challenge around really enterprise level management and infrastructure in the agriculture industry. And before that was working in the energy industry and studied physics. So was doing a lot on the solar side, but got into agriculture via business model. So our company was founding at the time, this new company that I worked for before ours was employee number, I don't know, three, maybe early, early employee. And they were trying to take advantage of the triage opportunity between produce distribution from West coast to East coast in the United States and say, you know, we can build smaller scale, fully controlled, environmentally friendly operations closer to the point of consumption, closer to the retailer, closer to the consumer. And in order to do that, we have to create an innovative financing model. And they borrowed from the solar industry and said, we can finance against long-term purchase agreements with supermarkets, which was really innovative at the time. I loved it. That was my connection in. And then turns out I became incredibly obsessed with agriculture, a lot more even so than energy because of this supply chain clunkiness, the ability to tweak one thing, have it ripple through and impact your entire supply chain, which is really good markets for software and for that first time digital market is really interesting to me. That's awesome. And how, I guess, is there any practical example of what kind of companies you work with and how they would work with you just so people can get a better idea of like, how does it actually work? <laughs> yeah. So we mostly work with specialty crops and that would be things that tend to be higher margin in the marketplace, tend to be things that are directly consumed by consumers. So things like lettuce, tomato, cannabis. cucumbers, cannabis, peppers, hemp, and so less so things that are commodity basis, like corn, wheat, soy. So we tend to work in this directly consumed market. Reason being super high risk, right? So if I'm a consumer and I'm the only step, I'm one step or two step removed from my supply chain, it becomes really high risk as opposed to something that's heavily processed, goes through lots of steps before it's ever even consumed or processed by a human. So we tend to be in areas that are high risk. 
higher margin, and also where data can actually impact your operations pretty significantly and pretty quickly. So you can actually turn your operation on ahead if you learn something. And so we like controlled environment ag, greenhouse operations. We like protected ag. We like field ag as well in certain scenarios, but we work in those areas that you can really learn from the data and make decisions quickly. We do work in cannabis. We do work in non-cannabis. Um, so it's not really specific to either of those. But a typical operation for us, you can imagine like for cannabis, for example, which is always everybody's favorite topic, you can imagine smaller operations, right? Maybe 10,000, 20,000 square feet all the way up to expansions over a million square feet. But you start in that smaller fully controlled warehouse environment. You're using us on probably tablets, walking around the field, scanning barcodes, measuring weights, all these types of things that would really affect operations. So it's pretty on the higher tech side. On the other end of the spectrum, you can imagine maybe a 20, 30 acre greenhouse operation. We've got a Canadian operator, for example, fourth generation farmer, has never really used Excel. Really that first time digital, so it's a still laptop based, web browser based, but it's that first time of moving all their pen and paper to digital, which is fun. So separate challenges that different growers are facing, but still the same use of the software. And how does the business make money? It's a subscription, it's a SaaS play. So we charge based on acreage in the system and complexity of the operation. So things that tend to be higher risk, higher complexity tend to be priced a little bit higher than things that are low risk, low complexity, and then based on acreage, not user. That's great. That's the first time I've ever heard that. Usually you're like, oh, charged by user, by traffic, now it's by acreage. That makes So makes we do it sense. very intentionally as well. So if you, in compliance, when you think about it as a compliance platform, you don't want to incentivize bad behavior, right? So if you do a per seat license, one of the easiest ways to get around per seat licenses is transfer licenses amongst users. We actually are tracking exactly who does what, when they do it, how they do it. And that's important for food safety and for compliance. And you don't want people sharing licenses. So it's incredibly backwards, I think, to charge by user where you're encouraging that bad behavior. Acreage is kind of akin to user in the rest of the world. And it denotes scale. So you can scale up as acreage grows up, but you don't encourage some of that other bad behavior of uh, you know, maybe incentivizing people to enter less data or share licenses or things like that. Usage-based pricing for the win. Okay. And what kind of numbers are you able to share around the business day? So it could be employee size, growth rates, revenues, whatever you're open to share. Sure. So we're still a relatively small team, I guess. And we're about 27 people, fully remote team. So helpful in times like today. And so, but mostly based in the United States, we're, as far as growth, we actually are growing still pretty quickly right now. So Q1 was one of our best quarters yet, growing pretty quickly, about 30, 35% month over month growth in Q1. Same thing, Q2 is still growing pretty steadily. So less so, obviously, with the impact of COVID, just from a mental space capacity, I think people are just obviously tuning down purchases, trying to cut costs, but we're still growing, which is really exciting for us and anticipating that continues through Q3 and Q4. I'm curious because I've never had someone in the agriculture space on the podcast. So I guess for you, is there anything like, how do you grow in that space? Is there anything you're doing specifically that's different? Because usually people that are SaaS on this podcast, like Facebook ads, Google, that's, you know, you hear that over and over. Is there anything unique you're doing from a customer acquisition perspective? That changes in COVID or just generally speaking? Just generally around like agriculture. I'm like, there's got to be some, like, how do you hit up, you know, these farmers or whoever's doing this stuff? So, yeah. So this is one of the biggest challenges, especially as you guys, you know, from a tech entrepreneurial standpoint, like the way that we think about product market fit, the way that we think about growth is similar in a lot of respects, but also very different. And one of the major challenges that you have in the agriculture space is that the customer is 
essentially an enterprise customer, even if your SaaS is, is lighter, right? So you could be targeting maybe an SMB or mid-market customer in terms of size of contract or size of acreage or size of complexity or whatever it is that you're judging based off of, and yet still have a complete enterprise process. So that's one of the things that's very different is for entrepreneurs, there's a real focus in on, you know, when you think about CAC and when you think about acquiring customers and your funnel mechanics, you have to build in how do you speed up the time? How do you increase top of funnel? How do you think about the mechanics of maybe a, a lighter a lower CAC business model and apply it to what really could be a very long sales process, field trials, like years long field trials before you can expand all those different things that are very similar to ed tech, gov tech, really clunky, big enterprise sales models. So we do a few things, you know, very tactically. We do have a reliance on events and things. So that's obviously more difficult when it comes to shelter in place and COVID related changes. But events are a great place to get in front of farmers. Going direct to farmers, again, similar sort of challenge when you can't travel, but being in front of farmers. There's also very farm specific mechanisms. So we have things like field trials, that are events or field days where you can go in and showcase different technologies all at once, which is always fun. We do digital versions of this as well. So we did a digital grower summit, uh, a virtual grower summit recently, where we brought a bunch of growers together, held these panels where we talked about their challenges, what they're going through. And that was a good way to showcase some new, you know, how do you think about service in an era where it's all virtual, where farmers are used to, okay, something broke, somebody's got to come to the farm to fix it. So starting those conversations around digital and virtual service support. Uh, sales. But really getting in front of a farmer is one of the easiest ways to build trust. And so, especially in the age of COVID, it's thinking about how does that change? How do you sort of build all that trust without necessarily being in front of somebody? Yeah. Speaking of virtual events, I had a guy I was talking to last week, uh, Ryan Levesque, and he had a regular event. It was a high ticket price and he switched over to virtual, but he's really skeptical and his audience was as well. So imagine people are paying like a 25 grand per ticket for the year. You get a couple of these, but it was his highest scoring event ever, highest MPS score ever. And he's just like, yeah, it's clear that virtual events work. And then he was sharing numbers with his friend's company. They had 2,400 attendees did $6.5 million on their virtual event. So I guess my question goes to you. Do you think your virtual event, you know, kind of experiencing it, was that better? Does that beat in person for you or is not so much still? Well, now I'm thinking I should probably charge for my events uh, if I can make $6.2 million. Now, um, I don't know the answer yet. So this one event did pretty well. We And so our events are a lot smaller scale, even in person. There's the big trade shows that bring in 30,000 people. And then there's the smaller ones. We tend to do very well at the small to mid-sized events, the like 4,000 person events. And those for us tend to translate into probably 100 to 200 leads that are not top of funnel, but mid funnel. So high quality because they're oriented towards our customer base. So if you think about that as your base level where you're trying to get, let's just say 100 leads that are mid funnel, virtual events for us tend to be bring in higher number of leads. So we did probably anywhere from three to 400 leads, but they're very much top of funnel. And so it changes the way that you think about who the lead is, what the quality of the lead is. So very high quality. Yes, we will do them again. Yes, it works. But you have to note that it does change where the person is in the funnel because it's probably going to be, you know, having the opportunity to talk in person gives you instant qualification. You can move somebody down the funnel pretty quickly. You can translate it right into a software demo that day. So you can move somebody presumably from top of funnel to down funnel 
in one day when you're in person. You can't do that on virtual summits as much because you just don't have that opportunity to have one-on-one conversations. But if you can facilitate that, that could potentially move people down quicker. Yeah, makes sense. Let me know how you I guess, if you do decide to charge, let me know how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we did talk about kind of before we started, the three passion points you're centered around is actually kind of a change up. We're mixing things up right now. Cause I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, man, you know, the employees right now, you can't really expect them to work the full eight hours. Maybe it's like four or five hours, six hours or whatever, but eight hours is just each day is just burnout because you're doing the same thing every day. So you mentioned kind of, you know, you have, you've been baking bread, you've been, you know, kind of working on your venture fund as well. And then you're playing little Zelda too. So I just guess, how are you thinking about it differently? You're actually the first person I've talked to about this where it's like, yeah, it's actually good to change things up. Yeah. So, well, I'll say that our employees are definitely not on a four hour schedule. (laughs) Um, Like we're still as productive as we were before, if not more productive. And the reason is because we were already well-established infrastructurally for remote work. So we already are good at documentation. We've got asynchronous communication. We've got all the things that you would need to think about was already really well-established for us. And where I do find that it is very important to either switch it up or think about the mental headspace is in that very emotional connection to what's going on, right? We're in a pandemic. It's not like everybody's just sort of working remote. Uh, working from home, it's a very different attitude when the world around us is sort of collapsing. And that is very detrimental to the way that we work, to the way that we live, to the way that we think. And it really hinders things like creativity and, and not necessarily productivity because people will take work as an outlet for things that are going on around you. But I think it does hinder you in the way that you think creatively and emotionally and sort of that side. And so one of the things that I found very early into the sort of pandemic work from home situation was I was actually working a ton more because you cut out things like commuting, you're stuck at home. So you're working extra hours, you're being more productive, which is great. Like, you know, as a founder, you're like, wow, I found all these hours in a day that I can now add to work. It's great. But it ends up quickly going into like that mental sort of burnout stage. And so even if it's on a small scale. And so, yeah, I've been trying new things, baking a lot of bread. Turns out that doesn't actually require a ton of time, um, which is really nice because you're letting it prove for a really long time. But it's a lot of fun to play with the science ratios and think about, so do you want less sugar to still make the same rise? Can you play with gluten-free? Can you do all these different things? Can you play with toppings both on top or inside or fillings or all these things? Um, So that's been a very fun as like a science nerd. That's been very fun for me. Venture, similar thing. So I'm a partner at a venture capital fund that invests in early stage female founders on the side. And what I found pre-COVID was it was very hard to structure time around that and be diligent. So my deal flow was very low and, you know, doing a, maybe a deal a year, maybe two days a deal a year and post sort of in this pandemic era, just finding the time to dedicate to looking at increased deal flow and things like this has enabled me to really think about how it affects my business as well. So as a founder, you get to say, actually, increasing your deal flow of other founders, you can look at what works, what doesn't work. Oh, that's an innovative business model I wasn't thinking about. Maybe we can implement that here or there or thinking about consumer tech and how that might implement how we could steal things from you know, a very B2C model into a B2B model into an enterprise to speed it up. So thinking about things like product-led growth, right? How do you do a lot more self-serve models? How do you do potentially sort of pre-made demos that people can play around with? So those kinds of things I think are really interesting. And then Zelda's just fun. So <laughs> that's a good thing to do before bed instead of, you know, to cut down, I think everybody's increasing their TV watch and I've never been a huge TV person. And so um, 
you know, that, playing, Zelda's playing your TV. Yeah, it's my TV. I, I mean, I'm watching TV as well. We just started Clone Wars and that has been surprisingly amazing despite being a cartoon for kids, but, yeah. <laughs> but really, really good. And so if you're yeah. a Star Wars nerd, highly recommend. Um, Disney Plus? It's on Disney Plus, yeah. Got it. Yeah, I watched it on a plane once and I was like, this is pretty good, but you just reminded me. It's like me surprisingly good. Yeah, it's yeah. really, the, if you're like a real, if you're really into the Star Wars sort of canon, it's, it follows a lot of really interesting storylines that the movies don't really get a, a you know, a place to touch on. So um, that's what you do at night. That's great. Yes. Um, And play Zelda. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to, I was just talking before the show, Alice and I were talking, I'm going to go back to the office and get my switch. So I'm going to make the journey today and do it. But yeah, I think it's great. I mean, there's, I think, you know, talking about the creative outlet with the bread and then also you have a creative outlet with the venture fund too. And have you been getting more deals done or just Mm -hmm. seeing more deals? Yeah. So I've done actually closed on three since COVID sort of really took up. So that's been really cool. And deal flows definitely picked up. I feel like just one, because people are having a hard time raising, right? So that's just the nature of the business right now, which means old deals come back to the table. It means that people sort of going for bridge rounds. That's an early stage investor that just happens to happen more often right now. And it comes to us because we're early. So that's been good. But also just a lot of creative business models have been coming out of new work from home models or virtual sort of play models, which is interesting to me. So yeah, I think deal flow has been up a lot actually since, since the pandemic. Deal flow up, valuations down. Yeah. Yeah. What's the fun called? Just so people know. X Factor Ventures. Okay, cool. Nice name. All right. So working towards wrapping up here, a couple more questions. What is your favorite business book? Favorite business book of all time is definitely Raising the Bar. So that's a good one. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend. It's the story of the Cliff Bar founders and their journey. Um, Very interesting because I feel like everything touches so much on venture that they actually rejected venture. So they took a very different path. Very interesting. But I'm also reading Bob Iger's book right now. And that's been pretty fantastic. Got it. That's awesome. Actually, similar to Raising the Bar, I'm going to add this into like, maybe it's a trilogy, but you... it's not really a trilogy because it's not from the same people, but you do raising the bar. They reject venture. You have shoe dog from with, mm-hmm. um, Nike, right? That's how to play the game. Right. And then yeah. you have something stretchy pants. It's a Lululemon one, but it's like uh, how yeah. not to do venture, how to get basically hosed. So yeah. I, I would also just do a plug for Arlen Hamilton, who's amazing. And her book just came out and it's in my mailbox right now. As we speak, I just got you know what it's note. called. It is called It's About Damn Time, and it's about underrepresented founders and investors. But her story is incredible, and also I don't think female founders are often on these lists, so uh, I'll do a quick plug there. No, thank you for that. We'll put that in the show notes. How about favorite business tool? For work? Could be for work, or it could be like a personal thing too. Ooh, yeah, that's good. Favorite work tools right now have to be Zoom. (laughs) We are already on like very loyal Zoom people, so but it's proven to like, I mean, if you think about impressive founders, Eric and what he's done for Zoom is insane. They went from like fully B2B model, the B2C model overnight, and are like keeping the world communicating and alive. And, and so that is pretty insane. And the way that, the fact that it hasn't decreased in bandwidth and all these things is pretty amazing. So I will like very huge plug for Zoom and Slack, same thing. I think like the ability to stretch across those verticals and things is pretty impressive. So yeah, those would be my two. Awesome. Well, Allison, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah. So personally, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, pretty much every social mechanism under Allison Koff, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-K-O-P-F. And then you can also just email me directly if you want to chat about anything. So founders who, especially female founders who want to reach out and talk business, I'm very open, but also any founder who's just sort of thinking about ways to level up, I'm happy to chat with you. So that's just akoff at artemisag.com. 
Allison, thanks so much for doing this. Of course, my pleasure. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.